Uh, before we jump in, um, I just wanted to start off with a quick review of what we talked about last night. Again, we introduced this idea of uh, spiritual formation, also known as sanctification, and specifically we discussed how important it is that we work hard to redirect our gaze toward Christ. Inevitably, we all become what we behold. And if sanctification is about the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, then we have to make sure that we're beholding Christ regularly and consistently with our lives. And again, thank you, Praise Team, for leading us in song and really even through the lyrics of what we just sang, uh, directing us toward that end. Uh, this morning, I want to continue expanding on this idea of beholding Christ and specifically consider what kind of impact doing so will have on our lives as well as the life of the churches that we're a part of. And so if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And our text uh, this morning comes to us from Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. And as we did yesterday, let's go ahead and rise in reverence for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Please be seated. The State of the Union is an annual speech delivered by the President of the United States, usually sometime around the beginning of each calendar year. The first ever State of the Union address was given by George Washington way back in 1790, and virtually every president after him has taken up this same tradition. This speech typically includes reports on things like the economy and other important issues facing Americans like crime and education. The State of the Union also provides opportunities for the president to propose new policies and laws he believes will be most beneficial for our country. So for all those reasons and more, the State of the Union has long been regarded as one of the most important speeches in American politics because it allows the most prominent leader in our country, the commander-in-chief, to share his thoughts and perspectives on how the nation is doing. Well, in a similar way, the chief shepherd and head of his church, Jesus Christ, provides a state of the union, if you will, here in the book of Revelation. 
Although we typically associate the book of Revelation with complex matters like the end times and the rapture, there is a short section here in the beginning of this book that is relatively straightforward in nature. That section, which is found in chapters 2 and 3, contains a series of letters Jesus wrote to various churches throughout Asia Minor. To be precise, it was seven different letters to seven different congregations in seven different cities. Those cities being Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Because the number seven typically functions as a kind of sign and symbol for completion in the Bible, many readers of Scripture have long considered the seven churches in Revelation to be representative of all churches. In other words, the book of Revelation is not simply about churches that were around during the first century. Instead, there are lessons and applications that any church in any place at any time can derive from reading these letters. And again, the first church Jesus addresses in this book is the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, of course, should be familiar to all of you. We've all read through the book of Ephesians before. But while Paul's letter to the Ephesian church is perhaps better known, the book of Revelation contains the other lesser-known letter to the Ephesians, written by none other than Jesus himself. And again, in this letter, Jesus provides a state of the union, or what we might call a state of the church, describing his take on the spiritual health and condition of these Ephesian believers. So the plan for this morning is for us to take a closer look at this letter, and through it, to learn what it means to become the type of people and the type of church that beholds Christ well. To help structure our time together, I'm going to navigate through our passage using three headings, and we begin with the commendation. The commendation. I'm going to start reading again from verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. As you can see, this letter begins, as many others do, namely by identifying the letter's author as well as the letter's recipient. And according to verse 1, the recipient was the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, it's possible that this could be referring to an actual angel. But that term was commonly used in ancient times to refer more generically to anyone who was a messenger. And considering the fact that the book of Revelation on the whole contains several elements that are symbolic in nature, I actually think it's pretty reasonable for us to conclude that the term angel here is being used in a metaphorical way, perhaps in reference to someone inside the church who was responsible to communicate messages, maybe a pastor, an elder of some kind. But regardless of how we choose to interpret the word messenger here, either as a reference to a human messenger or a supernatural one, the point still remains. It is Jesus who is addressing his church. This same Jesus is the one we are seeking to behold this morning. He's the one that we're trying to become more like in our spiritual growth and sanctification. So as we behold Christ through his word, who and what do we see? Well, in the chapter before, Jesus was described in awe-inspiring terms. Look at it with me, Revelation 1, beginning in verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstand stood one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, 
like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a pretty incredible picture of who we are called to behold. If you're anything like me, maybe you find yourself defaulting to seeing Jesus primarily in terms of his humanity. Meek and mild, humble servant riding on a donkey. And while he's certainly all of those things, the book of Revelation also highlights the fact that the one we behold this morning is also divine and glorious as well. Again, according to scripture, he is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He holds the keys to death and Hades itself. As we just read, Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice like the roar of many waters. Out from his mouth proceeds a two-edged sword, and his face shines like the blazing sun. I wonder how our experience of beholding Christ would change if we thought of Jesus that way. Not only as the Lamb of God, but also as the Lion of Judah. How would our sanctification take on a different look and shape if we related to Jesus not merely as humble servant, but also as all-authoritative, preeminent king? I'm thinking that would probably change some things. For example, I'm thinking we would start to see Jesus as more than someone to simply believe in, but as someone to ultimately follow and obey. I'm thinking that our worship of Christ would not be limited to Sunday mornings, but that it would pervade every single aspect and dimension of our lives. I'm thinking we would view discipleship as something more than an experience to passively consume, but as something to proactively engage in. And that's why you see it is so important that we behold Christ properly. Also, according to this text, Jesus walks among us. In particular, he walks among those who gather together with other believers in the context of the local church. And as he does, what do you think he sees? Pastor H.B. Charles puts it well when he asks, What does Jesus see in our worship services, in our small groups, in our prayer meetings, in our counseling sessions, in our staff meetings? Most importantly, is the Lord pleased with what he sees? Was Jesus walked among those who worshipped him at Ephesus, he actually observed several good and commendable things. Take a look again at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So here we see our Lord commending the Ephesians for their patient endurance. As Brian mentioned yesterday, our church back home, BMC, we just celebrated our 10th year anniversary. I know, again, that lighthouse just recently passed that 20-year mark. 
Well, the church in Ephesus had been doing ministry for well over 40 years by the time the book of Revelation was being written. And throughout that entire duration, they had more or less been faithful and consistent. For four decades, they had shown themselves committed to doing the Lord's work. They had bravely withstood many different hardships and difficulties. Many commentators believe that the Ephesian church had been subject to intense persecution and suffering. But despite all of those trials, again, the Ephesians had proven themselves faithful to persevere. They had not grown weary in doing good, but instead remained steadfast in their devotion to the Lord. In addition to their patient endurance, Jesus also commends the Ephesians here for their doctrinal fidelity as well. Apparently, certain individuals had begun to infiltrate the church in Ephesus, claiming themselves to be apostles. And verse 6 actually tells us a little bit more about them. Yet this you have, Jesus says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. For our purposes this morning, we don't have to, uh, time to do a deep dive on who the Nicolaitans were, but safe to say they were wolves disguised in sheep's clothing. You might even remember in Acts chapter 20, shortly before Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, he spent some time fellowshipping with the elders from Ephesus, and there he warned them about the threat of false teachers who would soon come to prey upon their people. Acts 20, verse 29 and 30. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Taking heed of this warning, the Ephesians were vigilant. They were on guard. Rather than tolerating the presence of false teachers or even worse, succumbing to their power and influence, the Ephesians were careful to maintain doctrinal and moral integrity by swiftly exercising church discipline against those who claim themselves to be apostles. And again, the Ephesians, they did not do this because they were hateful people or spiteful people or judgmental people. They did this because they understood how important it was to guard the purity and integrity of their church. So they protected themselves against these heretics. And again, Jesus affirms and he commends them for doing so. Again, these were just some of the things that Jesus saw and observed as he walked among the church in Ephesus. He saw a church that patiently endured, a church that sacrificed and toiled, a church that carefully weeded out false teaching. Well, in the interest of applying this text to us this morning, what do you think Jesus sees as he walks among you, the people of Lighthouse? For my part, I believe that Jesus sees many good things here at this church. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your guest and so I'm obligated to do so. I really mean it because I believe it to be true. I think Jesus sees the many faithful servants who labor among you week in and week out. I think he sees the warm and hospitable ways you greet those around you. I think he sees all those who so graciously and sacrificially give of their time and their energy and their finances to serve this church. I think he sees the army of volunteers that make your ministry possible. I think he sees the fruits of your counseling ministry and your prayer meetings and your acts of mercy within the community. I think Jesus as he walks among you, would affirm you for the different ways that you have ministered through a pandemic 
and how you continue to do ministry in 2023 amongst this kind of crazy cultural climate which we live and the growing social hostility that's mounting against Christianity these days. I think he sees that Lighthouse has faithfully and diligently sought to proclaim the gospel. I believe that's what Jesus sees because, again, quite honestly, those are some of the things that I see. I love this church. I love you guys. I don't know all of you personally, but I love this church. Many of you guys know Pastor Alton. He's a pastor I work with. He spent some time at this church as an intern back in the day. And he and I are always talking about how we want our church to aspire to become like Lighthouse one day. You guys have definitely set the bar very, very high. But, and you had to know there was a but coming, okay? I'm building you up, all right? But, even though there are many good things to say about your church, no church is perfect. We are individuals in process, right? And therefore, we all belong to churches that are in process. So going hand in hand with Jesus' loving words of commendation, I also want us to take a look at the loving words of rebuke that Christ delivers in this passage as well. Bringing us to our second point, the correction. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I want you to keep in mind, Jesus just spent three verses commending the Ephesians for all their good deeds. Again, their patient endurance, their sacrificial labor, their doctrinal and moral purity. And he only spends one verse talking about what they were doing wrong. But that one thing he identifies is so serious, we should not overlook it. For you see, the Ephesians, according to Christ, had abandoned their first love. That word abandoned there in the Greek is aphemi. It can also be translated forsake or leave behind. It's what happens when one's love grows cold, like a married couple, right, who's lost the spark, so to speak, in their relationship. So there's an obvious point of tension here because on the one hand, the Ephesians had been faithful to preserve doctrinal integrity. They had patiently endured all sorts of trials and tribulations. They had not grown weary in doing good. In so many ways, they were the model church. They were an exemplary congregation and yet, they were also guilty of having forsaken their love for Jesus. How do we make sense of this? How does a church get so many things right, all the while forgetting why they were doing all of those things in the first place? Well, the scary reality is, we can say the right things, we can do the right things, we can believe the right things, and still lose our passion and fervor for Christ. We can go through all the motions of Christianity, but do so in rote and mechanical ways. We can serve the church, serve Christ, invest of our time and energy doing the Lord's work, and yet still find our hearts slowly drifting away. In fact, this is one of the biggest themes in all the scripture, the dangers of cold and lifeless mechanical spirituality. I want you to consider the following verses, starting first in Zechariah chapter 7. God asks, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, 
was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you guys, but those verses, they terrify me. They terrify me because they show me that it's actually possible to fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing all these great and wonderful things for the Lord, and yet do so with a heart that is totally devoid of love for Christ. As Jesus rebukes these Ephesians by saying that they had forsaken their first love, their first love, what he's implying is that it is possible to have a life filled with many good things, including Jesus himself, but still fail to set our affections upon him as our number one priority in life. That is the very definition of idolatry, is it not? You guys know it well. You guys are lighthouse. When good things displace Jesus as the ultimate thing. See, according to scripture, the great and most fundamental commandment is what? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet the Bible also says that it is possible to do many good things without love. It is possible to speak in the tongues of men and of angels and do so without love. It is possible to have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and do so without love. It is possible to have faith so as to move mountains and do so without love. It is even possible to give away all that we have, to even deliver up our bodies to be burned, and yet do so without love. How does something like that even happen? How does one lose their first love? Well, I think it happens as we make small and subtle compromises in our lives. You know, seldom does moral failure or spiritual apostasy happen overnight, right? Instead, it usually happens slowly, almost imperceptibly over time. Little by little, bit by bit, you start to neglect your relationship with God, stop reading your Bible, give less and less attention to prayer, Start making it a habit of forsaking the assembly of the church in favor of that trip or that concert or that sporting event. You give in more frequently to sin and temptation. Before you know it, you might find yourself spiritually and morally adrift. When I think about the future of churches like Lighthouse and my church back home in the Bay, I think the greatest danger we face is not the threat of persecution. But it's the lethargy that comes from spiritual complacency. Far more worrisome than someone, someone coming in and shutting down our church is the apathy and indifference that slowly settles when followers of Jesus become so enamored by the things of this world that it chokes out our love for Christ. 
far more concerning than the possibility of having heresy or false teaching creep into our pulpits, as real as those threats might be, is a loss of spiritual vitality and energy that inevitably occurs whenever we find ourselves too busy and too preoccupied with earning that next paycheck or planning out that next vacation or binging that next TV show. Far more unsettling than prominent members of the church committing moral failure in sin is a subtle hardening that takes place when we pursue a thousand good things like finding a spouse or raising our kids or planning out our retirement, all the while forgetting the ultimate thing, which is Jesus himself. That is how love for God fades. That is how hearts grow cold. That is how Christians and churches come to realize that they are no longer pursuing spiritual growth, but instead they're just doing the bare minimum to get by. As each of us begins to consider where we are at in terms of our own personal sanctification, let me ask you, what do you think you're going to look like next year, in two years, in five years, in ten years? Will you have built upon the good fruit God has allowed you to bear by his grace? Or will your love have languished, your passion waned, your commitment to Christ grown cold? This word of correction that Jesus delivers to the church of Ephesus is a warning that all of us should be paying attention to, especially as men. I know it's not terribly politically correct these days to acknowledge this, but the last time I checked, male headship is still taught in Scripture. And we, we don't have time to get into all the reasons why, but the clear teaching of the Bible is that men are supposed to be the shepherds and leaders of their homes and of their churches. And therefore, it's essential that you and I are prioritizing our spiritual growth in the Lord because the health of our churches and the health of our families depend on it. So as those who are stewarding or who will steward the responsibility of leading your church or leading your family at home, what does your relationship with God look like today? How are you doing in your walk with Jesus? Do you still get excited by spiritual things? Are you still amazed by grace? Or have you left your first love? You know, the goal of these questions is not to stir up guilt, but to encourage healthy, spirit-led introspection in in hopes that you will be challenged to renew your devotion to Christ if indeed spiritual growth has stalled in your life. So if you've noticed that you have been drifting or coasting recently, there is no better time than now to consider what changes you need to start making. We're at retreat. We've all taken a pause from the busyness of our life back home to reflect and perhaps even to reset. So I encourage you, don't let this opportunity go to waste. Instead, pursue after Christ with the kind of vigor and passion and diligence you once had when you could confidently say that Jesus was your first love. The lesson that the Ephesian church teaches us is that no amount of doing good things for Jesus can ever replace the importance of loving Jesus from the heart. Many of you guys know this, but uh, a few years ago, 
I participated in a month-long counseling intensive at Lighthouse. So I had the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Pastor Kim and, and Pastor Tim. And it was a, a life-changing experience for me. And uh, there were so many highlights from my time with them, with my time with you guys. But one of the main takeaways that I remember is when Pastor Tim was talking about how one of our goals as counselors, and again, all of us are counselors, you guys know this, right? One of our goals as counselors is to convince our counselees that Jesus is not just right, but that he's better. And the reason why that was such a paradigm-shifting moment for me was because up to that point in my pastoral ministry, I worked really hard to convince people that Jesus was right, that he was the only way to salvation, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. But I would neglect to also point out how Jesus was also better that he was more satisfying and more fulfilling and more life-giving than anything this world has to offer. This is so important for us to remember because, again, it is not enough to simply believe with our heads that Jesus is who he says that he is. Our heart's affections must also be convinced of this as well. We have to know and feel that Jesus is the best thing that we can possibly strive after. Which is why, as basic as it might sound, beholding Christ must first begin by loving him truly and authentically and genuinely from our hearts. Thankfully, for those of us who may have lost our way, Jesus offers some practical tips of guidance and wisdom to help us get back on track. This leads to our final point for this morning, the command. Let's pick it back up, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Here Jesus issues three imperatives to help those who have grown distant in their relationship with him. First, he tells us to remember Specifically, Jesus tells these Ephesians to remember the heights from which they had fallen. I think all of us can recall a time in our Christian lives when we were on that spiritual high, right? When our relationship with Jesus was characterized by deep intimacy and joy. One thing I've noticed has become increasingly common uh, in recent years is all those like year in review videos. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like every December, every January, news outlets and sports teams and different social media pages will push out these montages, these videos highlighting, you know, uh, accomplishments and different events of the year gone by. That's basically what Jesus is encouraging us to do here. To replay in our minds times and seasons when we were thriving in our relationship with Him. Do you guys remember what that was like? Do you guys remember what you were like? For 
for me, even though I'd grown up in the church, it was probably during my years as a collegian where I was most fervent in my relationship with the Lord. I remember I would read my Bible over and over and over again, and I would study and underline and highlight and circle whatever I thought was important, and I would thumb through its pages so much that my Bible would fall apart, and then I'd go and buy a new one. And I would just do that over and over again. Every free moment I had, I would download sermons and listen to lectures from my favorite Christian apologists and read Christian books. And then I'd go out and take everything that I'd learn and I'd meet people on campus and I would do cold turkey evangelism. I, I could not get enough. Do you remember what it was like to be overwhelmed by the grace of God? Can you recall a season when your heart was so gripped by the truths of the gospel? That just thinking about Jesus would fill you with joy and with gratitude. Jesus commands you today, remember those times. It was John Bunyan who wrote in his autobiography, It is profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginnings of grace within their souls. That's why it's so important we do things like share testimonies and go on retreat, right? It's because those activities help us to pause and to reflect and to remember. We recall the past in hopes that it might impact our present and our future. In fact, the Greek verb here for remember in verse 5 is rendered in such a way grammatically that it denotes ongoing action. In other words, keep on remembering. Don't stop. Remember again and again and again, lest you forget how things once were. The second command Jesus gives to us here is to repent. One of the most common misunderstandings in the church today is that repentance is something that only non-Christians are supposed to do. But that isn't true at all. Repentance is not reserved for unbelievers alone. It is intended to be a way of life for followers of Jesus as well. It was a German reformer, Martin Luther, who once said that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Jesus was, or Martin Luther rather, was famous for the 95 Theses, right? That's the first of the 95 Theses. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So again, Luther's point was not that Christians need to accept the gospel and pray the sinner's prayer over and over again. What he's saying is that spiritual growth and transformation can only take place when we are continually practicing a daily habit of repentance. Biblically speaking, you know that repentance is a a change of mind that eventually leads to a change of life, a change in behavior. It is an activity only made possible because of the gospel, right? It's because Jesus laid down his life for us at Calvary and he spilled his blood to make atonement for our sins that we can even pursue repentance in the first place. So Jesus... He invites us in this passage to take hold of what he's won for us by repenting so we might enjoy the fruits of his forgiveness and his grace. 
If you have sensed in any way your conscience being convicted as we've been studying through this passage, I would encourage you, do not ignore that feeling. But instead, consider it a grace that the Spirit of God can use in your life to cultivate deeper passion in your heart. Remember what the Bible says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Thirdly and finally, Jesus commands us to repeat. Again, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So remember where you once were, consider where you are now, and repeat the things you previously practiced. What were some of those things? Jesus doesn't spell it out for us here, but safe to say it was probably whatever you were doing when the Spirit of God first filled your heart with love for Christ. I'm guessing it probably looked like a life of godliness and discipline. Later today, we're going to be talking about how critical it is for us to build up healthy habits and routines in our pursuit of spiritual formation. Things like Bible reading and prayer and fellowship and evangelism and accountability with other believers. That's just a snapshot of what it looks like to renew and rekindle our first love. It's a, a lifestyle of routines and habits that enable us to grow in Christ. You guys know this. It's hard to artificially drum up affections, right? Like, I want to love something, but you can't, you can't will yourself to do that in a manufactured type of way. For our relationship with Christ to thrive and to grow, it must be regularly nurtured and maintained. So in the words of Christ here, do the works you did at first. So once again, if you realize that you're at any danger or at any risk whatsoever of abandoning your first love, how can you revive and rekindle that love anew? Don't just sit around waiting to see if you're going to fall in love again. No. Jesus commands you, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. That is, repeat. As we do, my prayer is that God would renew our motivations to pursue spiritual formation, that we might behold Christ each and every day. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this admonition from your word. And we confess, Lord God, how easy it is for us to get distracted and preoccupied with the things of this world, the things, Lord God, that bear no eternal value or consequence. We ask in humility that you would forgive us, that you would remind us of your steadfast love and faithfulness and that we would receive the gifts of grace that you have provided for us through the work of your Son by repenting of our sins and finding forgiveness and restoration in you. I pray for these brothers, particularly for those, Lord God, who may have been coasting spiritually. Help them, Lord, to be awakened by your Spirit, that they may rededicate and recommit themselves, Lord God, to pursuing after you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as they do and as we do, Lord God, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.